Good morning. How are you today? Good, good. It's good to hear from you. Good to see you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be today. Uh, as you're turning there, I just want to say, uh, introduce myself to you. I'm Kyle, serve as the lead pastor here, and I want to welcome you if you're visiting today. Um, glad you're here. Romans chapter 8. So, um, as you're finding that, we are in the middle of uh, a series, well, really towards the back third of a series called The Big Picture. And in this series, we're just walking through the high points of Scripture, if you will, trying to capture what is the big picture of God's Word? What is it that God's Word is telling us from beginning to end? What is it that He's after? And what's this story? All right, so the, the story, as we've laid out, is the story of God's redemption. What is God's redemption? Well, we've summed it up this way. God's redemption is... God's people, once again, enjoying God's presence within God's place for God's purpose. God's people enjoying God's presence within God's place for God's purpose. And so uh, we've walked through a lot of things, and I, I summed up a little bit of those, kind of caught us up last week on, on some of those things. Last week we walked into a little, we are asking, who is the Holy Spirit? Just asked and answered the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And what we see in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is the third person of our triune God. And as the third person of our triune God, He is God's presence with God's people. It is God's presence come to be with God's people. So we looked at the account of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 last week and saw God's presence descend upon the apostles, His presence now reigning with His people. And, and so we said the purpose of the Holy Spirit then is for God's people to be filled with God's presence, for God's presence to dwell inside of us, as Christ says, that I will send my Spirit to be with you, to be in you. So God's presence in us, God's presence with us. Today I want to follow that up with what is the presence of God doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing? What's His purpose? Uh, he brings the presence of God to us, but what happens then? I answered that somewhat last week, but I think there's more to be said. One, we know that the Holy Spirit fills God's people with God's presence. But what does that mean for your life right now? What does that mean for us today? What does it mean for the church? And so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The Holy Spirit gives life to God's people. The Holy Spirit gives life to God's people through three things are happening in the Christian life. We're going to walk through these three things this morning. Adoption, sanctification, and glorification. The Holy Spirit gives life to God's people through adoption, sanctification, and glorification. Let me pray now and ask that God speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for the presence of Your Spirit with us and in us now. Father, we know that Christ has said that one of the things the Spirit would do for us is He would help us to know Your Word, to understand Your Word, to see it in the right ways that we might live by it through the power of the Spirit in us. So, Father, as we look at these things, we look at what the Spirit's done in our lives, would you help our praise soar? Would you help our adoration uh, be great for your name? God, help us to live for you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There's a creed written back in 325 A.D. It's called the Nicene Creed. It was amended in 381, but the, the purpose of the Nicene Creed was written to confront a guy named Arius and his heretical teaching that denied the divinity 
of the Son of God. He said that God's Son was not indeed part of the Trinity. He did not believe in a Trinity. The document now kind of acts as a summation of the essential beliefs about God, about His work, specifically about His triunity, that He is triune, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's a document that's still widely used across Christianity today. It's one that is referred to uh, often. The first thing the Nicene Creed says about the Holy Spirit is that He is the Lord, the giver of life. He is the Lord, the giver of life. The Spirit of God is the giver of life. We saw this last week briefly, that in the creation account, which we see in Genesis chapter 1, before God begins to speak anything into creation, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep, almost like a dove hovers. And then as God would say, let there be so-and-so, the Spirit breathes life into creation. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, an inquisitive Pharisee, one who wanted to know these things, who comes to Christ in the, uh, under the cover of dark, and comes and he's asking, how might I receive life? And he says, you must be born again. He says, how can we be born again? And Jesus says there to Nicodemus, it is the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit who causes rebirth. It's the Spirit, uh, as we see in the, the Nicene Creed, that is the Lord, the giver of life. In Romans 8, 11, which we'll read here in a moment, we see that the Spirit gave life to Jesus in the tomb, that it was the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, and in the same way it says that He raises us also, that He gives life to our mortal bodies. So one of the things we covered last week and the thing I want to remind you of this week is that the Spirit of God is not some strange force that's just kind of around us or within us. It's not something to be likened to a Jedi Knight or, or the Jedi Force. He is, in fact, God with us. He is God in us. And when He comes to us, namely what He does is gives us life. He produces life where there is no life, and He does this by giving us Himself. We have the very Spirit of God in us, the very person of the Spirit of God in us. Romans 8 is a wonderful chapter found in your Bible. It's a chapter that is deeply encouraging for all things in life, specifically pertaining to your sanctification, uh, your growth in Christ-likeness, and your eventual glorification, that God will finish the work which He's be begun in you. Romans 8 helps us in these roles, and it helps us in those things by helping us to see clearly the role of the Spirit in giving us this new life through Jesus Christ. It restores fellowship to us with the Father. We now have fellowship restored with the Father. So with that kind of introduction in mind, let's look at Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, all writing to these Roman believers, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now Paul summarizes in verse 15 what has just happened in verses 8-11 through 11 on our behalf through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. First thing I want you to know today is that the Spirit gives life through adoption. You've been adopted by God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit that has raised you to new life. Verse 1 describes the great privilege of Christians. This is the great privilege of Christians. This is the one thing we ought to really get down on the inside of our hearts is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I figured there would be more shouts than that, but you're not a shouting bunch, I know. In, G in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has just taken a really long kind of in-depth look at this ongoing war with the flesh. And even the Apostle Paul battled with his flesh. Even the Apostle Paul had sinful desires that would raise their head within him. He says this, in, in summary, he says, the things I want to do or the things I know I ought to do, those things that are of the Spirit of God, I do not do. I cannot do. I struggle to do, and the things I do not want to do, the things that I know are with the flesh, the things that I know are against the Spirit of God, I keep on doing. And Paul just cries out at the end of chapter 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, or who will deliver me from this body of death. See, what the Apostle Paul is laying out is that sin remains in us, sin disturbs us, sin afflicts us, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, it cannot ruin us. It cannot finally destroy us. You see, there might still be accusations against us because of sin, accusations that we will have no doubt received for the right reasons, as we will continue to commit sin still. But there is no condemnation from God to us because Christ has borne His condemnation on our behalf. 
God will still discipline us. We will still receive discipline from God as a loving Father disciplines His children so that we might walk in a manner that is worthy of the Gospel. Which means that we might receive an accusation because of our sin that causes real pain, real suffering, the loss of something. But all of that is meant to be disciplined from God that we might actually walk with Him aright. Might bring us back to Him. But you will not receive the condemnation of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, He is a city of refuge for you. He is a a place with walls that cannot be beat down, cannot be penetrated. You are protected in Him. Christ is your advocate, Hebrews tells us. He is able to save to the uttermost all of those who draw near to Him. In Christ, God doesn't condemn you. He doesn't condemn you. And He also doesn't hold you at arm's length. I was trying to think of an illustration of like, what would it be like for God to hold us at arm's length? And, and I'm, we're in the, the stages of parenting where we're, we're, we're just past potty training for the most part. But I, the diaper days are not so far behind me that I can't remember them. All right, I can remember sitting in a restaurant holding wells, and, and he just, I mean, he pooped. And, and it was awful. He's not in here today, so I don't, I don't mind telling the story. But it is one of those poops that just the diaper couldn't contain it, right? I mean, it is everywhere. It's on my leg. It's on my shirt. And you're in the middle of the restaurant, and you look down. You, you feel it first, right? You're like, oh, no. And, and what do you do to get to the restroom? Well, you run like this, right? <laughs> like holding him out. Because the last thing you want is for it to drip more on you. And I thought about God. I'm like, again, kind of disgusting, I know. But, but in a sense, when, when we sin, it's as though we've pooped our pants, right? I mean, it's, and it's possibly worse. But God is not holding us at arm's length, just barely in contact with us when we sin. God brings us near to Himself in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He's not holding us at an arm's length, but He's bringing us near to Himself. Why? Because you are His child. You're His child. This is what it means that you've been adopted. We'll get into this in a moment. But you've been adopted by God. You are now children of God. As His child, you're no longer to walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit of Him who raised you from the dead. Now, what do we mean by being raised from the dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 lays this out. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. At work in who? The sons of disobedience. Who are they? It's the world. It's the ones who are following after the flesh. Again, you'll see this more clearly as we go. Among whom... This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. In what? The spirit of the flesh. We all once lived in this, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. 
once a child of wrath, he says, like the rest of mankind. And then in verse 4, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, he says. Once you were a child of wrath, once you were bound to the flesh, but the Spirit of God has made you alive, you are now a child of God. Then Paul goes into Romans, and what he's explaining here is that it's not the law that has set us free, and he explains why. He says, the law could not give you life. Why? Because the law cannot on its own justify you. It cannot declare you free of sin. It reveals your sin. It's not declaring you free of it. It shows you that you are a sinner. It cannot sanctify you. There is no power in the law to sanctify, though there is power of revealing. It's going to reveal, once again, that we are in sin. But it cannot free you from the guilt of sin. It cannot free you from the power of sin because it does not carry the promises of the pardon which comes by grace. You've been saved by the grace of God, Paul says there in Ephesians. So the law in itself makes nothing perfect, and therefore it is weak concerning salvation. Now Paul explains that the weakness of the law concerning salvation is not because of the law. The law is perfect. It's not because of the perfect law. The weakness comes in our imperfect flesh. The weakness of the law is in us. We are incapable of being justified because we are already guilty. We are incapable of being sanctified because we are followers of the flesh. We're children of wrath. We're bound to our sin nature. This is a point that Paul explains really well. So Romans 8, as most of you know, your scriptures uh, in the New Testament, many of these are letters, right? So Romans is a letter. It's a letter to the church at Rome. Now this church would have been made up of both Greeks and Jews. There would have been Jews and Gentiles there. And so Paul spends much of the letter explaining that we are all now in Christ by faith. But he explains that this was necessary, that the death of Christ was necessary, that that God could become both justifier and justified in his condemning Christ to death so that he might free us from the guilt of sin that he wouldn't be unjust in doing so. Someone had to die. Why did someone have to die? Well, Paul says in Romans 5 that all have inherited the sin of Adam. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death has entered into us through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, you and I just by birth have inherited the sin nature that Adam brought on humanity. We are in Adam. We are not in Christ at birth. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So what Adam's, or sorry, what Paul's laying out here as he brings up Adam, as he's talking about this in Romans chapter 8, is that we're unable to keep the law, and so the law, though it reveals our sins, can only leave us as it finds us. That is, dead in our trespasses and sins. Makes us aware, no doubt, 
but cannot save. So he gets into what? He says, but the law of the spirit of life has set us free. The law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What Paul says now is that you've received a covenant of grace rather than a covenant of works. That a covenant of grace has replaced a covenant of works. By grace, you receive pardon from sins. By grace, you are justified freely in Christ. By grace, you receive a new nature. You are freed from the law of sin and death, both from the guilt of sin and the power of sin over you. By grace. We are under another covenant. We are under another master. We are under the law of the Spirit of life as Christians. The law that gives the Spirit for spiritual life. This law of grace. And in it, we find real life. We find eternal life. And Paul explains the beauty of how this took place. In verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that explains how it set us free in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So how did it happen? How were we set free from the law of the flesh to live in the law of the Spirit? God sent His own Son. When the law failed, God provided another way, a sure way. The law reveals the need for another way, a way that God had already determined, a way that God had already planned. Jesus came to do what the law could not do. And Paul is here informing his hearers in Rome and us that God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sacrifice for sin. Now, in the likeness of sinful flesh means that he was made fully man without sin. And so that his sacrifice for sin could actually be received because he had not sinned himself. He was able to take on all the sins of those who would place their faith in him, all the sins of God's people. So God condemns sin in Jesus Christ. This means that for all who are in Christ Jesus by faith, both the, the, the damning and the domineering power of sin are broken and taken away from us. He that is condemned, if you have someone who is condemned, that person can neither accuse or rule. Though he might still live. Now this is true of Satan. This is true of that sin within us, the flesh. It is condemned by Christ. Though sin lives and remains in us, it cannot rule us. Amen? Sin cannot rule us. This is what 1 John 3, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. What is God's seed? The Holy Spirit. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, what does it mean to make a practice of sinning? Well, you make sin your career, right? It's your, it's your life. It's who you are. You, you practice sins. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It doesn't mean that we should be fearful that we are not gods anymore because we have committed sins. There are lots of sins we commit that we're not even aware of. Right? 
It just means that we won't go on sinning. We won't make a practice of it. We won't, we won't set up camp there because God's seed abides in us. We cannot keep on sinning because we have been born of God. See, Jesus Christ was made sin for us, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. So when He was condemned on the cross, sin was condemned in the flesh of Christ so that it would not have to be condemned in our flesh. It means it was condemned in the human nature. This act of God in Christ Jesus made a way for salvation and sanctification for all who will turn to Jesus Christ by faith. You can be assured that if you will turn to Christ, if you will turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, you will be saved. You can be assured that as you are being saved, a major component of that is your sanctification. It is your growth in Christ-likeness. You will not make a practice of sinning. You will not go on sinning. Indeed, you cannot go on sinning because you are a child of God. Therefore, both in our justification being freely saved. And in our sanctification, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled because Christ has fulfilled it. Not because you're fulfilling it. The righteousness of the law is not fulfilled by us yet. By God's grace, it is fulfilled in us. By the Spirit of God that is alive in us. The Spirit of Christ which reigns in us. We know this to be true by the way we walk. We walk, as Christians, we are to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. We act from spiritual and not worldly desires. But for those who will not turn to Jesus Christ, the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in them in their ruin, in their damnation. Now, how can we know whether we walk by the Spirit of life or if we walk by the Spirit of the flesh? How can we know this? You have to examine what you desire. Paul here talks about the mind, the, the mind of the Spirit. But do you desire the things of the flesh? Do you mind the things of the flesh or do you desire the things of the Spirit? Do you mind the things of the Spirit? What are the things of the flesh? Earthly pleasure, worldly profit and honor, the things of sense and time are the things of the flesh. These are the things that unregenerate people desire, things of, that the people who have not yet been born of God desire. However, the favor of God, the welfare of the soul, the concerns of eternity, these are the things of the Spirit which, are the, which belong to those who are born again by the Spirit of life. They desire those things. Paul says here that the things of the flesh are death. He says to set the mind on the flesh is death. What does he mean? It is spiritual death. You, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. It is death. And that death will lead to eternal death. And so therefore, worldly souls are miserable souls. They're dead souls. But he says the things of the Spirit are life. He says to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Here you have real life, eternal life, life breathed into you. The Spirit of God making you alive with Christ Jesus. 
And because of that, you have peace. Now, does this mean like the world peace that a, a lady in a pageant might wish for? No. This is real peace, lasting peace. What is real lasting peace? Is it the ceasing of wars? No. I suspect that as long as the world goes on, there will not be an end to wars. So what kind of peace are we talking about? Is it the kind of peace that I'm just, maybe I'm not afraid of the dark anymore? It's peace with God the Father. Once a child of wrath, now a child of God. It's peace with the Father. This is what it means to set the mind on the Spirit, is that it gives you life. You were born again by the Spirit of God, and in that life you now have peace with God. He, he says, right, that you will not fall back into a spirit of fear, but you now cry, Abba, Father, as those who have been adopted by God. What would be a spirit of fear? That's a spirit of, that lacks peace, right? The kind of life that lacks peace. Well, why? Because you see that God is a holy, just, righteous judge. And that in your flesh you cannot stand against Him. You will be condemned. But because of the Spirit of God which has made us alive, we now cry, Abba, Father. Just like Christ does. That in the Spirit we now have we are now co-heirs with Christ. We're sons and daughters of God. And so we don't fear God, we run to Him as Father. We don't run and hide in the bushes sowing fig leaves and covering ourselves up in our nakedness as we see with Adam and Eve in the garden. God has to come looking for us. Where are you? Well, we hid ourselves. Why? We ate of the tree you told us not to eat. We've sinned against you. Now we run to God, Abba, Father, peace. This is peace. That peace will be perfected one day. We'll dwell eternally in the perfect peace, the perfect presence of God. Paul goes on to explain why things of the flesh are death in verse, verse 7. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see, the worldly sinner then is a dead man, which is bad enough. It's bad enough to be dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses and sins, yet still alive, but you're spiritually dead. But what Paul says here is that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. So you're not only a dead man, you're a devil of a man. You're not only an enemy, an enemy with God, but you are enmity itself. You're not only alienated from God, but you are in direct opposition to God. You are against God in every way. You rebel. This man rebels against God's authority. He scoffs at God's design. He opposes God's desire. Do we need to pull up news clippings of our current times to observe what it looks like to be worldly? You scoff at marriage the way God has created marriage between one man and one woman. A lifelong commitment. There is no truth outside of God's truth. 
But the one who is at enmity with God sets himself or herself up as the arbiter of truth. The one who gets to decide what is true and what is not true. And so you can live your truth and I will live my truth. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is only God's truth. To be against God's design, oppose His desires, is to be against God in every way. You see, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but your trespasses and sins are putting you in enmity with God. Brothers and sisters, I think that texts like this ought to serve as a warning to us, but they also ought to humble us. We, we too should be careful that we are not harboring or indulging in the things that are at enmity with God. We should not condone, we should not accept, we should not go headlong into or go along with things that go against God and the way He has created things. He is our Creator. He's our owner. He's our ruler. He is our benefactor. We are saved because of Him. And so we must be careful to know Scripture well so that we might live well so that we might be able to denounce fully anything that goes against the designs of our Creator, our Lord. To denounce anything that goes against His desires. You see, the worldly man, by the power of divine grace, may be made subject to the law of God, but the worldly mind cannot. See, the worldly man might participate in the things of God, might appear godly, but his mind cannot be made godly. That must be broken and expelled within him. Paul says this person cannot, indeed he will not, submit to God's law. Therefore, when you see a change in someone's demeanor, someone's desire, someone's behavior, they go from longing after the things of the flesh to longing after the things of God, that that is wrought in them by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. He has made them alive. It does not happen by the freedom of His will. Verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the worldly, unregenerate state, those who are under the reigning power of sin, cannot do the things that please God. This is what Paul is saying. So the question is, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? The Spirit, the Spirit dwelling in you is the best evidence of your being in the Spirit. We, we dwell in God and God dwells in us, as John writes in 1 John 4. The Spirit visits Many that are unregenerate. And they resist Him and quench Him. But in all that are sanctified, in all that are saved and being sanctified, we know that the Spirit dwells in them. In the heart that is growing in Christ's likeness, in the one who is putting to death the deeds of the flesh, taking on the Spirit of life, we know that the Spirit dwells and rules there because that is not possible by their own will. It is alive in them by the Spirit of God. And so you may know if the Spirit dwells in you, 
If you are spirited in the same way Christ was. If you are gentle, humble, peaceable, faithful, pure, patient, kind, loving, good. We must be like Christ while still becoming like Him more and more each day. The Spirit, as the presence of God with us, guides us. So what Jesus says, He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. If I go, when I go, I'm going to send to you a comforter, a helper, one who will be with you. He says to the apostles there in, in His final hours with them, that the Spirit will guide them into all knowledge, that He will make known to them the things of God, the things which Christ had taught them, He will make better known to them, that they might teach them to others. Reveal these things. And so when you see the Spirit descend at Pentecost, it's not some wild, weird thing in Scripture. The Spirit of God descended on the apostles and they did what? They went out declaring in other languages the works of God to all who were near. It's exactly what Christ said would happen. You will declare the things of God. He will make them known to you so that you might declare them. And so He sanctifies us. He guides us. He sanctifies us. He teaches us. He comforts us. How? By His presence within us. It is, it is God in us. This happens in all of us. Because the Father has adopted us as His own. He adopts us as His own by Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us new life. We no longer live in fear before God. He's the judge, but we cry, Abba, Father, as the one who has justified us freely by His grace through Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of life, which means we are His sons and daughters. You see, the Holy Spirit gives life to God's people through adoption, through sanctification and glorification. Let me give you a, a couple of brief things on sanctification and glorification. I'm going to wrap this up. As His children, we are to grow in Christ's likeness through the power of the Spirit within us. Romans 8, 12-14, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see, those who give themselves to the flesh, Paul says, they will die. But for those who commit themselves to Christ by faith, for those who will slay the works of the flesh by the Spirit, those will enjoy eternal life. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. What I love about this is it reveals that the Spirit of God is alive in us. You will put to death the deeds of the flesh. How? By the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death. You see, it, God and believers have a role in sanctification. God and you have a role in your sanctification. It is by the Spirit and His power that sanctification happens, but you put to death there shows that you must take an active role in battling against your sins. 
That means that when I encounter Scriptures that show me how I am in sin, how my desires go against the desires of God, I am to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit within me. Scripture tells me that it is wrong to look upon another woman with lust in my heart. I am to put to death the deeds of that flesh by the Spirit of God within me. I am to wage war Wage war against that until it is dead in me. The Spirit of God teaches us not to be greedy. We are to learn generosity. The Spirit of God instructs us to be loving towards our neighbor. We are not to be hateful towards our neighbor. The Spirit of God through the Word of God reveals that we are not to be gossips or slanderers then we are to use our words for life. And if we cannot, we shut up. God is building in us the likeness of Christ through the Spirit. And you have a role in this. You are to listen to the Spirit of God in your life. Every thought that comes to here should not result in action immediately. You better think about how that relates to the Word of God. Every desire that comes into your heart, you should ask yourself, does this align with Scripture or is this against God? His truth, not our own truth. He is God. We are not God. But the temptation for Adam and Eve is the temptation for us today. It's that if we'll take of that fruit, we will be like God. And so this is what we commit ourselves to doing so often. We want to take of the forbidden fruit so that we can exert ourselves as God. We might be God, not Him. Be careful, brothers and sisters, of those desires in you. He says, if you are led by the Spirit of God, you will be sons of God. By way of encouragement, Romans 8, 16, 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children then heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. There's so much to say. I mean, there are, there's a ton here. But let me sum it up this way. As children, you are heirs of God. You are fellow heirs of with Christ. And for now, you will suffer with Christ. You will suffer with Him so that you may also be glorified with Him. What is suffering with Christ? Suffering with Christ is anything that comes to your life as a result of you living faithfully for God. Meaning, it's suffering to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Those are real desires within me. Things that I want to act on. It feels like suffering to not act on those things in that moment. But life comes on the back end. There is suffering to come When you look a boss in the face and say, I cannot go along with this. It's against what God commands. I will not lie about this. I will not fudge this. Whatever. 
There could be suffering for taking such a stance. Just a small little thing like that is not small when it comes to your integrity. It's not small when it comes to your holiness, your godliness. There are many ways that suffering can come to us just by living faithfully for the Lord. But understand that that suffering comes to you just as it came to Christ so that you might also be glorified as Christ is glorified, co-heirs with Christ, eternally dwelling with God, co-heirs with Christ. I told myself I'm going to ask these two questions at the end of each sermon to kind of help us think through life. How does this passage help us grow in faith? I'd sum it up this way. From beginning to end, our salvation is wrought in us by the Spirit of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who was sent to die for us by the Father. Our faith soars as we understand that God is so involved in our salvation from beginning to end and our sanctification, and our glorification. How does this help us grow in love toward others? Well, the Spirit's maturing us, correct? He's helping us walk in the fruit of the Spirit as seen in Galatians chapter 5. He's sanctifying us so that we might begin to look more and more like Christ Jesus. In this way, in that way, you will grow in your love toward others. You'll walk humbly with others. You'll live peaceably with others. You'll do good to others. You'll act mercifully toward others. So we need only commit ourselves to Christ and the Spirit of God will work out all the details of how that looks in our lives. Specifically, what we see here, I think, is a zeal for the salvation of worldly souls. A zeal for the salvation of those who do not yet know Christ. This passage is uberly clear that that those who do not know Christ, those who are committed to the flesh, will inherit eternal damnation. And they cannot live by the Spirit unless the Spirit of God makes them alive. Paul says in Romans 10 that the way that life comes to unbelievers is through the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. That God uses His Word as you go out, you, not just me, but you guys go out into your homes, into your workplaces, into your schools and your children's baseball teams and whatever. As you go out there with the desire to see lost souls come to know Christ, you proclaim His Word to them. You talk about how God is perfect. He created a perfect world. And it's fractured. It's broken by sin. And we are now inheritors of that sin. We are born in the likeness of Adam. We are separated from God. We are enemies of God. But God, being so loving, sent His own Son that whoever may believe in Him will have life. Life. Eternal. You get to do that in your children. You get to do that with your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with friends, co-workers, acquaintances. Let's pray that God would give us this kind of zeal for unbelievers. This kind of zeal to see unbelievers' lives changed. Amen? We might grow in our love toward others. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you.
God, I thank you for this truth that we see here, that the Holy Spirit gives us life. And we have it through adoption and sanctification and glorification. That in every way, God, you are working in us to make us more like your Son. We're gifted for that. We're used for that. We're loved for that. We might know the joy of eternal life, life with you. God, would you help us as men and women, as boys and girls, to walk in those things, a life worthy of the gospel which we've received. Father, I love you, and I thank you for these brothers and sisters here. Help us to be men and women who are growing in our faith in Jesus, who are growing in our love toward others, not just one another, but those outside of here also. We love you, Lord. Would you be with us now as we sing to you, as we commit ourselves to you, as we spend time in prayer, as we respond to your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.